All right. Praise the Lord. Okay. You guys can find your seats. Welcome, Chicago cohort. Hey, hey. Welcome, those of you listening online. Today we are resuming our study in the Pentecostal Handbook, also known as the Book of Acts. Y'all excited? Feels like too long since we've been together, right? Y'all like Mardi Gras? You had fun? Good, good, good. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Um, Covers a lot of different uh, material here. As to my recollection, we have the Macedonian call of Paul in this chapter, as well as Paul's uh, first meeting with Timothy, among other things. So got a lot of good stuff to get into today. Let's welcome up our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Y. Rostek. Let's give it up for Jared as well. Come on, give it up for him. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful. What a great time to be together. I think Jared shared it quite well, that this is a power-packed chapter that's going to take us to a lot of different places, and it's going to give us a lot of different nuggies. So let's get going into it. Acts chapter 16. We're going to learn today an, an overall theme that God builds his church through faithful disciples, okay? And he protects his church, and he makes sure it continues on, even when it's in its uh, phases of infancy. And so this is how I feel personally as a, as a church planner, as an elder. Right now in the body of Christ, I feel very much like a round uh, peg trying to go into a square hole. I feel like I just don't fit in a lot. And I don't know if you guys ever sense that. When you get around other Christians, sometimes it just feels like the things that you're doing, the things that you're seeing or sensing, isn't generally the climate of the church around you. Well, it's where I, it's when I go back to the book of Acts that I find my people. It's where I find my gente. And I know that sounds a little cheesy, but really, that's where I find my people. That's, that's my inheritance. That's, that's my, uh, those are my heroes. And I can go back there and I can see how clearly they did it. Uh, so, for example, uh, you, you, you know, if I was to ask you right now, what makes a church service an awesome service? You know, what makes it great? Write down four or five things. Um, most people today in our culture would write down things that the early church had nothing really to do with, you know. Uh, and they would be writing down these things that the early church would probably be very foreign to. The early church would be very foreign to a stadium-style seating and, and the productions that we have with our worship and our services. That's okay. I'm not not saying it's sin. We do. We have lights. We have a stadium seating, you know, in a little storefront like this. But that that's not what they would consider an awesome service or a great singer. That, that wasn't their way of saying what a service was good and what their focus was. Uh, their focus was getting together and doing the work of the ministry and then encouraging each other. And so when I look throughout history, I try to find people that are like that. And so I'm very much encouraged by the Salvation Army. When you read about the story of William Booth, and what they did. It's powerful. It's amazing. John Wesley and the Methodists, very similar. Uh, They did not need much. They didn't need fanfare. They didn't need a production. All they needed was a few people that were on fire for God, and they would change the world. That's literally what John Wesley said. Give me 100 people that fear nothing but God and sin, and uh, we'll change the world, you know? Uh, That that was the motive of their heart. a Salvation Army, they, they said, we don't care if they can't speak hardly any of the Queen's English. As long as they know the gospel, they'll turn the world upside down. Uh, D.L. Moody, very similar in that sense. And so 
when I go through like a chapter like this and it tells me what the early church is doing, it just captures my attention because I don't really see it a lot on TBN. I don't, don't hear about it when I listen to K-Love. When I see the videos in my, my, my scroll, you know, on Facebook, I don't see this. This is not what I'm seeing. This is not what I'm hearing. When I listen to people speak, I don't hear them talking about this. As a matter of fact, it disappoints me. It grieves me so much when I hear guest speakers and they spend so little time in the Scripture, and yet they go on and on and on about their opinions, and then and they allegorize everything. Everything's an allegory. This is an allegory over here, and this is an allegory. And, and when this prophet went over here, this is what this meant. And I wish I could be more specific right now, but I don't want to be rude. But I just want to say, like, all of this allegory, I just get to the point, I'm like, man, are, are you that dull when it comes to reading the Scripture? The Scripture says everything plainly. You don't need to make up three and four other stories to complement what the Bible already said. And as a matter of fact, when you look to the preaching of the apostles, just listen, when you listen to the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, they're not telling stories. They don't go to this city, as we're about ready to see to Philippi, and tell the story of the woman at the well and say, this is like you. And no, They preach the doctrine of Jesus. They don't tell the stories of the prophets and then somehow turn it around to life lessons for them in a sense where it didn't even really apply to the prophet in that way. It's more of like a stretch of what really happened. No, they literally say what the prophet said. They use the words of the prophets and they tell them what they said. And the reason why I say all of this is because you're going to see uh, Paul and Silas get in jail and they're going to get set free as they sing in the midnight hour. And, and there's just an allegory for some preacher to take and run with. You may feel like you're in a Philippian jail and you're tied up, but if you start singing, there's breakthrough for you. Just start praising. There's breakthrough. Now, is there truth in that there's breakthrough in our praise? Yes, but I've already been broke through. I've already been broke through. I've broke the womb of heaven. I've been born again by the grace of God. What? How many more chains need to be shackled on me to learn to live free? The Bible says who the sun sets free is free indeed. Stop telling me I'm in chains all the time. Why? Why, why, what is the story actually telling us? What the story is actually telling us is that they were in literal chains because of preaching the gospel. When you are in literal chains, sing unto the Lord. Don't let the suffering of this world take away your song. Sing for joy. Sing because the presence of the Lord is there with you. Be encouraged by the testimony that I've shared with you from the pastor from North Korea that said there was not one gloomy day when he was in those concentration camps. He found his joy in God. Look to uh, William or Richard Wombrandt from the Voice of the Martyrs, you know, tortured for Christ. Listen to him and how he sang for joy when he was in solitary camp confinement. You don't sing to get free from pornography. You believe that Jesus sets you free and you'll be free indeed and you hold to his teachings. That's how you get free from pornography. You, you want to know how you get free from stinking thinking? You take on the new self and put on the attitude of Christ and take off bitterness, rage, and those things. See how simple it is? I didn't have to make up a story for, for, for you to get the point. Don't you get it from the words of Scripture? Why do we think so little of Scripture and so much of ourselves that we have to add so much to it? 
And it really takes away. The Bible says that you've done two things wrong, Israel. Number one, you forsook the living water of God. And then number two, you went to a broken cistern that has no water. You've left the one with water, and you've gone to the broken one that has no water. Let's stop leaving the Word of God. Let's go to the Word of God. Let it illuminate us. Let it, as the Bible says, wash us. Find yourself in the story, not a make-believe story, not an analogy from the story. Find yourself in the actual story. See what they actually did and be inspired by their lives. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Acts 16, verse 1, they're on their second missionary journey. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Let us remember what happened in Acts 15. That is the Jerusalem council. It is a council that decides what the rules will be for the Gentile believers. Will they have to become converts to Judaism to be saved, or will they follow the new covenant of Christ, which is a fulfillment of the Old Testament law? They then, for cultural reasons, give them just a few uh, things to do, not to eat food, sacrifice to animals, drink blood, to get along with the Jews, and then they say they, have, they don't need to get circumcised, they don't need to do all these things, so this is all they need to do, send them on their way, uh, send these apostles back on their way to go back and fix the problem, because remember, it was Paul and Barnabas that go up there with the major problem, and now it's settled, so Paul's moving on his way here. Now, this is where the cults will come back and say, hey, if circumcision was not a part of the plan, then why does Paul circumcise Timothy here? See, why does that happen? If it's not part of the plan, because remember in Acts 15, it says there's a statement there that the cults like to use to take out of context because it says, you know, these are only the things that we ask them to do, but there's uh, synagogues in every city to this day that they can go to if they have more questions. So this is where they make the decision. Prior, what, uh, what I was scrolling through was the letter. But here's where they make the decision. They say in Acts 15, 20, instead we should write to them telling them to uh, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat strangled, uh, from, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So what the cults take this to be is here is the baby steps that they're supposed to take. Then they're supposed to now go to the synagogues and get the rest of the law. And then so what they try to prove now is in Acts 16. You see, Paul takes Timothy and he now circumcises him. So that must mean that these are the baby steps that you're supposed to take. First, stop eating this kind of food. Stop having sexual morality. Then eventually you'll get circumcised. Eventually you'll start keeping more of the dietary laws, etc. And they use this verse to prove it, but it's absolutely incorrect. First of all, going back to Acts 15, it was specifically addressing the issue of circumcision. That was the whole point. So they do not have to be circumcised. And then when it makes that reference that the law is read in the, uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath, what that simply is saying is that's why we're asking them to do these things is because there's Jewish people in every city that we have to go and reach first, and we don't want to offend them by eating food and 
and being perverted by, uh, in, in our presentation of the gospel. Because if they came to them eating lechon, eating things that they did not like, they could not even get to the first base with them. Are you tracking with me? And so now then Timothy gets circumcised. And there's two reasons that people give to why Paul circumcised Timothy. My friend Sam says that this is because Timothy was a Jew. Jewish faith came from your mother. Pagan faith came from your father. So his father basically was raising him as, as an unbeliever, and then I guess he gets at some point saved through his mom and his grandma, and he had never been circumcised. But now Paul wants him to actually do what Jews should do. Now, Paul, uh, Sam himself said this is controversial, and I disagree with it. He said that this is because Jews should still carry on these traditions until Jesus comes back, whether they're saved or not. So you would look at them as more of messianic Jews. I don't agree with that. I don't believe a Jew is still obligated to keep the law in any way. I believe why Paul did this was so that he might reach the Jews that they were going to go meet with. So can you be circumcised as a missional approach to contextualize yourself? Yes. Uh, when you go to India, they don't like the Christians any jewelry, so they take it all off, even your wedding room. Can, wedding ring. can you do that? Should you cover your head in a Muslim country? Yes, but does that mean the women are under the bondage of the covering? No. It's just something you're doing to, to reach the people around you. Now, why do I believe that is the reason here? Is because it says Paul wanted to take him along on the journey in verse 3, so he circumcised him, and it tells the reason. Because of the Jews who lived in that area. Now, if you skip ahead to the, book, uh, to the end of the book of Acts, how does Paul eventually get arrested by the Jews accusing him when he goes to fulfill his vow that he's bringing uncircumcised people into the temple? which wasn't true, but that was what they accused him of, got him arrested. So it's for this very reason that he knows how touchy they are that he says, you know what, I'm going to circumcise this man because he is considered Jewish by the Jewish people. And then, then if he's not circumcised, it's going to look like I'm defiling the, the law, that I'm saying the law is not important. And then if he ever has to go around the temple with me, it's going to literally look like I am breaking the law on purpose even with Jewish people. Because even then he couldn't bring in pagan people, but to bring a Jewish person into law, uh, into the temple, and then him not be circumcised would be like a slap in their face. Is everybody tracking with me? And so that's what I believe the reason is here. He's not going against the Jerusalem Council, he's not going against the book of Galatians. He already said in the book of Galatians, which we believe is already written, the Jerusalem Council has already happened, that if you get circumcised for righteousness, your righteousness counts for nothing. Because unless you keep all the law, none of the law works in your favor. And let's just see that quickly in Galatians chapter 3 so you don't think that I'm just making that up. In Galatians chapter 3, he begins to rebuke them for going now to try to finish what God started in the spirit by the law. And then he begins to tell them that it was faith that saved Abraham, not his circumcision. Now in verse 10 he says, For all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. Somebody say everything. Thank you. Everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And then he comes down to the conclusion of this point here, which is about circumcision. He comes down to, to, to the conclusion, thank you, in chapter 5 where he tells them if they want to be circumcised, that they might as well go all the way and emasculate themselves. And it says here in chapter 5, verse 12, as for those agitators, oh, let's just go up to verse 11. 
to get the context here. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So is Paul preaching commun- uh, uh, circumcision to Timothy? No, he's not preaching it as a part of his righteousness. He's giving it to him as a missiological approach. And he even says this, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Roman I became a Roman, etc. That's all he's doing here. That's the first thing that we notice. Uh, the next thing that we notice about this, or rather the thing prior to this, is that God replaces John Mark with Timothy. So Paul and Barnabas get into a fight in the prior chapter about whether or not to take John Mark with them. Barnabas wants John Mark, but Paul said he has disqualified himself. Here people try to read into the motives and think Paul is wrong, but who does the Bible follow? Who writes three-fourths of the inspired Scripture? Let the Word speak for itself. Does Paul ever repent for this? No. He does restore John Mark later on, but it's after he had been disciplined. Barnabas was interfering with the discipline, so here we see Paul continuing on without him. Now he takes Silas with him instead of Barnabas, and in the very next chapter, God replaces John Mark with Timothy. I have seen that happen many times in the ministry. One drops out, another one comes in. The gospel train keeps going, amen? And so we see this about Timothy. His father's a Greek. His mother's a Jew. She's probably a at some point a lukewarm Jew because she never should have married a Greek, but she does anyway. And uh, then she gets to be right with God as we hear about in Timothy that Timothy has a lineage through his mother and grandmother of serving Jesus. But now they're going to do it the right way. They're going to be on fire and do things uh, better than what they had been doing. And the only reason why we can assume that she had did something wrong is because she married a Greek. You weren't supposed to marry pagans, amen? So at some point she probably did the right thing. Does that strike you as odd that she married a pagan? Yeah. Yeah, he's a Greek. That's what it means. No, no, no. He's a Greek. He's not Jewish. So if you come from the if you come from the nation of Greece, what are you? You're Greek. So my family, what do we call my family? No, no, no. My wife's family. Sorry, my wife's family. We call them Greek. So then what do you call like people who are of another nationality. That's just, we'll talk later, but that's a nationality. So his father was Greek, not by citizenship, not like a Roman by citizenship as Paul was, but he's Greek as in his nationality, and he should not be married to a Jewish believer. So as they traveled from town to town, and we see that was part of the problem as well because Timothy wasn't circumcised. If his father would have been a believer in Judaism or at least a God-fearer, he would have circumcised his son. So he's being raised more culturally as a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders. Now notice the governmental structure here. You notice elders are now being attached to apostles because those unique apostles need to hand off authority, right? They're going to die eventually, and some of them have already died in persecution. So who's going to run the church? Elders. Does eldership ever switch to pastors in the church? 
No, it never does. In the entire Bible, who's in charge? Elders. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5 says that elders do the work of shepherding, pastoring. That is correct. But elders are the governmental office. That is what Paul established earlier on in the book of Acts. He appoints elders, and the deacons serve with them. And specifically, one of the last letters that he starts to, he writes at the end of his life, 1 Timothy, he's implementing that. In Titus, he's implementing that. That is the structure for the rest of the church age, elders and deacons. Can I hear an Amen. And now elders and deacons can have the five-fold ministry. Elders and deacons are pastors, prophets, apostles, you know, you know all those things. Uh, the next thing that we see here is that they're handing out the decisions delivered by those folks. So he's not contradicting. He's not going, hey, guys, you don't have to be circumcised, but, hey, you have to be circumcised. No, that doesn't make any sense. The letter literally says you don't have to get circumcised. The decision was in Acts 15. They don't have to get circumcised. Can I hear an amen? Do you all remember that, right? So they don't have to get circumcised. He's not then going to say, well, Timothy, you have to get circumcised. That would be a contradiction. Next thing that we notice in verse 5 is that the church grew daily in numbers, and that's what we have to believe God for, the church growing daily in numbers, not in people looking to join a church from another church. We call that church hopping. That is not the kind of growth that we want to have. That is acceptable. It's okay. It's because we live in a world where people uh, maybe not are happy with their church or there's issues or they move, whatever. Uh, we think the best of them when they come, but the bottom line is our job is not to shift around the people in the, the, you know, the different churches. Our job is to go plunder hell and populate heaven. Amen? Amen. Verse 6, Paul and his companions, we notice now that there's multiples. So it's not just now Paul and Silas and Timothy. There's probably some others there, and I want to see if you catch what happens here. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Pergia and Galatia. Now, just go back and look at this map. What he's doing on his second missionary journey is he's going back to the areas he had first went to with Barnabas, and then he's going to go much, much further. But this time he's going up north instead of going down south as he did through Cyprus last time. Barnabas and Mark went through Cyprus. Now he's going to go up here to uh, Tarsus and Derby, Iconium, and up into the Galatian area. And then he's going to go way over there, as you can see, into Macedonia. Okay, so he's going to familiar areas as well as some new areas along the way, and he's making sure to strengthen the churches that have already been established from his first missionary journey, and he's going to start new churches there. Okay, so here uh, he goes to Pergia and Galatia, having, excuse me, he, Paul and his companions travel through the region of Pergia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. He gets stopped from going into another direction. Now look at verse 7, when they came to the border of Myasia, they started to enter, enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. A few things that we notice here is that the Holy Spirit directs their mission to go from one place to another place. But what is unique about the description of the Holy Spirit? Here it's called, uh, here he is called the Holy Spirit, but what is he called here at the verse 7? Hmm. What does that assume? Well, the Spirit of God, that Jesus is divine, doesn't it? We see the Trinity right here. The Spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Remember in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, he says, I will send another. He will come on my behalf. He will speak what I speak. So he is the Spirit of Jesus. Not only is he the Spirit of Jesus in the New Testament, but Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, that the Old Testament saints, what spirit were they prophesying by? Trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of 
love, Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. So how did Isaiah prophesy, Isaiah 53, about Jesus? By the Spirit of Jesus. How did the other prophets, Zechariah, all of them, it was always the Spirit of Jesus. What spirit came upon Moses? The spirit of Jesus. What spirit was upon the elders and so forth, the tribal leaders? The spirit of Jesus. Now, is the spirit of Jesus just the Wi-Fi of Jesus? So it's an impersonal force that you just kind of connect into. It's just the energy that he sends out. No, the Holy Spirit himself is a unique person. That's why Jesus said in John 17, I will send you another, Elion in the Greek. It is another of the same kind. He said, then by him the Father and I will come and make our abode with you. This is not to take away the personality of the Holy Spirit. This is just to say that the Holy Spirit is under the authority of Jesus. Just like Jesus is under the authority of the Father. Jesus only speaks what the Father says. The Holy Spirit only speaks what Jesus says. Just because my wife is under my authority, does that make her less human than me? You need to learn these things, right? Because Jehovah's Witnesses will try to say, see, there you go, the Holy Spirit's a force. It's the force of Jesus. That's, you can just you know, take out the word spirit and put in force, the force of Jesus, the Wi-Fi of Jesus. No, 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 no. Just because it's called the Spirit of Jesus does not mean it's a force, an impersonal force just reflecting the person of Jesus. No, the Holy Spirit is a separate person than Jesus, but he only speaks on behalf of Jesus. And that does not make him less than a person like Jesus. Just like my wife may only speak to my children what I've asked her to speak because she repeats the law that I lay down for the home. She's under my authority. That does not make her less as a human being than me. And my children children who speak forth what I tell them to speak or what my wife and I do does not make them less as a human, a lesser kind of human than my wife and I. Are you understanding the image of God? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are represented in the three parts of a family, man and woman and child. Once again, we're not saying that because the Father is the man and the child is Jesus, the Holy Spirit is feminine like the woman. But when he made man plural in his image, let us, let us plural make man plural in our image, and then he made them plural, male and female in his image. The offspring that they have is a unity in a trinity, mother, father, children. That is an example of a complex unity of individual persons that all share the same nature and DNA. Amen? Amen. And so the Spirit of Jesus attributes the deity of Jesus by showing us that you can insert Jesus where you normally would insert God. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got up and at once to leave for Macedonia according to that what God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Anybody notice the difference there? Anybody notice the difference? I'm blocking it off because I have it in my notes. Something significant just happened. Happened in the pronouns. Hmm. I have a special treat for whoever. Yeah, give it up for Ashley. That's right, sister soldier. So who do you think joined them at this point? Why does it become us and we now? Why is it we get ready? 
He called us. Why do you think it changes? You can even look at my notes now. They're right on the screen. Better than staring at me with a blank stare. Actually says it. I have it written there in black and white. Stop looking at me blank. If you read the notes, oh, say it out loud. Luke joins them on the journey. Luke is the author of Acts, isn't he? And now he says us and we. So he becomes a part of the journey. Uh, Our best guess, notice I say our best guess, of how the book of Acts was written is Paul's defense to Caesar. That's the best guess of how and why Acts was actually written. As Paul is appealing to Caesar in jail in Acts 28, that's where it ends. It seems like now he wants a record of his travels to present to Caesar to say what the Christian faith is, what it is not, etc. That's our best explanation for it. And right here we believe Luke is, is when Luke joins him. Luke had not been on the journey up until this point. Now Luke is a part of the journey and he does this with that simple change and it is in the Greek as well so it's not just an English, uh, uh, you know, transliteration that you wouldn't find in the Greek. It's actually there in the Greek as well. He starts to put in the personal pronouns as the author, and now he's going to become a part of the story. What's significant here, though, let's not get lost in that little detail. What's significant here is that the Spirit of Jesus guides them and stops them from doing one thing and guides them to doing another thing and uses a vision to speak to them. This is all possible today. Once again, this is the what kind of handbook? The Pentecostal handbook that still believes the Holy Spirit speaks and guides and gives visions. Amen. Oh, I have some visions, or I should say dreams. I have some dreams of preaching in Asia. I do, and I want to see those dreams come true. I see, uh, have dreams and visions still of preaching to a large number of African-American people. I still believe that God has called us to do a great work on the south side and in places like that. So God has given me those dreams. But this one was very specific. Now, let's go. Boom. So from verse 11, from Traos, uh, we put out to sail and sail together for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to ne- uh, Neopolis. Neapolis, rather. Neapolis. I listened to this five times on the way here. Hopefully I can get these words right. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. What did you just notice with these descriptions of the places they went? What did you just notice about those places? And it said it specifically about Philippi. We learn a mission strategy here in Paul's second missionary journey that becomes crystal clear, and I still believe it needs to be applied today. What do we notice? Yes, sir, go ahead. Went to the leading city. What does the U of S-U-M stand for? Urban. Urban is a leading city, isn't it? Urban is a part of a metropolitan area. As a matter of fact, it's where you have the most condensed amount of people. That's still what that definition means. It's where the most amount of people are condensed. When you look at the population of Chicago, metro will consider all of the suburbs in the areas, but the urban is the city limits itself where the most condensed amount of people are. And there we see that Paul goes to Philippi, and it is the leading urban city. As a matter of fact, are any of the New Testament books written to anything but urban cities? Is Corinth a village, small town? Ephesus, small podunk town? Hello? Philippi? Colosseia? Corinth? I already said Corinth. Rome? Where does he go? 
he goes to the leading cities. It's a calling, isn't it? The call of missions is to start in our cities. And I could be here all day defending that. It's okay if you don't want to do that. We're helping a church in the, um, the bayous of Louisiana right now, but we're going to help them not continue to go out into the swampland where nobody lives. We're going to help push him back into the city. And that's his goal is to keep starting campuses as he moves towards the city. And it would have been ideally from the city out, wouldn't have been, because you'll have more resources and more people that way. Can I hear an amen? And as a matter of fact, that's how the church was planted, was from the city on the way out. And so it's better from the in out of the city as opposed from the outside in. This was Paul's uh, strategy, and it was actually God's because we believe God is leading Paul. Amen? And so look at it again. Verse 12, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gates to the river, the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, why did they expect to do that, or expect to find a place of prayer there? Is because he's following the command of Jesus to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. So that's why he circumcised Timothy, because he wants Timothy to be around Gentiles and synagogues and not be rude to their customs, especially since his mother was a Jew. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. For whatever reason, there's only women there. It could be that the town is backslidden. There's men not really serving God. Or it could just be their time of prayer because sometimes the women had their time and the men had a separate time because they would not meet together. Anywho, they go and the women are gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Two things we learn about Lydia right here is that she is wealthy. By this description right here, a dealer in purple cloth, this would be the equivalent of her saying she was the Versace of her day. This is literally saying she is a well-to-do woman and she has her own business. She is a mover and a shaker. And then the next thing, she's a worshiper of God. This means that she is not probably a Jew by birth, but she is what we would call a God-fearer. That is another way of saying a God-fearer. So she probably has a, a Gentile background, but she is a God-fearer. The next thing that we see is the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, this is where the Calvinist would say, Pentecostals, you give it back. You give it back. This is the Calvinist handbook. See, she couldn't get saved unless the Lord opened her heart. Whose choice was it for her to get saved? It was the Lord's choice. It was God's choice. It wasn't her choice. She didn't open up her own heart. The spirit and the flesh are at enmity with one another, so you can't do what you want. The flesh cannot submit itself to the things of God. Only the spirit can submit to the things of God. She was regenerated first by the spirit. The Lord opened her heart, and she was brought in. She was drawn in, and all who the Father draw in, the, the Jesus raises up. None who the Father draws in will, will, will the Father not raise up, right? This is John 6. This is good Calvinism right here, right? There's the proof in the pudding. What else do you need? Well... The problem with that is, is that it's not taking into the context what's actually happening here. But don't take my word for it. Let me just read from John Calvin what he said was happening here and all the other places like this. By predestination, we mean the eternal decree of God by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. 
All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of those ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or death. That is Calvin's Institutes. Is that the proof in the pudding for what he just taught? No. Because what do we believe? Let's give you what we believe. By predestination, we mean the predetermined redemptive plan of God to justify, sanctify, glorify whoever freely believes in him. All people are created with equal value as image bearers of God because God desires mercy over justice, self-sacrificial love for everyone. He has graciously provided the means of salvation to every man, woman, boy, and girl. No person is created for damnation or predetermined by God to that end. Those who perish only do so because they refuse to accept the truth as to be saved. So which one describes better this sentence? The Lord opened uh, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It's a tough one, right? You may say the Calvinists may have us here. The Calvinists may have us beat here, right? Because the Lord did it. But hold on, let's back up. Did we ever say that faith came from ourselves? We never said that, did we? See, what they're doing is they're putting words in our mouth, and they're taking away a scripture and claiming it as ours and not knowing, if we don't know our history and our belief, we don't know that this is actually proving our point. Why? Because when the Lord speaks, it opens up hearts. But the person has to decide to believe. The person decides to believe. When your heart is opened by the word being spoken, you decide what kind of heart you're going to have. Look at the parables of the heart. Are you going to have a hard heart as the word is being spoken? The word is being dropped on your heart? That's not God's choice. That's your choice. Are you going to have a weedy heart where you're going to have shallow depth and commitment to God so that the sun uh, destroys and burns up your salvation? Or are you going to have a weedy heart that wants to continue in sin so that sin takes over? Or when your heart is open to God's word, are you actually going to receive it and believe it and trust in it? That is what it says. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the message when she and the members of her household were baptized, uh, excuse me, when she and her, and, excuse me, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. She said, I'm a believer. I believe. But how was her heart open? God opened her heart. We never say that we open our own heart, that it's our own decision to pursue after God for us to try to understand God. No, we believe, Romans chapter 3, that left to our own devices, we would never do it on our own. But is by, God his, by God's grace, is he leaving us to our own? Or as we're about ready to see in Romans 17, is he giving us his presence in creation and in conscience so that we might find him? Is he leaving us alone or is he drawing us? He's drawing us. And then we can go to back that up because in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, we see the same language used. Why would it be important to go to Luke chapter uh, 25, verse 45 to see the language here? Because Luke is the author of Acts. And it's a description in both places, isn't it? It's actually not Paul saying 
God opens your heart, and that's why you believed, and you couldn't have done otherwise, etc. No, it's actually Luke describing the moment. Luke describes it from the outside, saying, man, God opened up her heart so that she could believe, right? Well, does he use that language at other place? Yes. He uses it one other place in his gospel. When Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with those men who were followers, and they were talking with him, it says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. So do we do it on our own, or does God do it for us? God does it for us, but do we cooperate and receive? Yes, they could have disbelieved. They could have said, well, I don't believe what you've opened my mind to see. Didn't Saul do that? King Saul had his mind open to the prophetic, open to the will of God. And then he started living in sin, disbelieving, and became filled with the demonic spirit. The spirit of God left him, and then came a demonic spirit upon him. It's the same idea. God is opening the heart through the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Word, so that we might believe, so that we might respond. You have a choice whether or not to believe in the Arminian doctrine of prevenient grace. I still do. The traditionalist who I just read from, uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers, does not. He believed that the grace is in the message itself. It's okay whether you believe in that or not. But the bottom line is the Word of God comes and faith comes and the heart is open and the choice is yours. Has anything been contradicted here? No. So we'll take the handbook right back and put it on the Pentecostal shelf. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. At once, when we were going to the place of prayer, so by the way, she probably had to have a big home for all these people to stay there. That's another indication of her wealth as well as Cornelius, to have such a house to invite all the apostles over to, and uh, many of the apostles, and uh, as well as the, the family he had. So their houses might have been the size of this, you know, this room or this building. Some of them were very big, spacious. Like if you ever saw Gladiator, the movie Gladiator, how he kind of lived there out on the countryside, but you could see that also in the cities, and, and the homes could also be on the outskirts of the city, just, you know, what we would say a suburb. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Once again, Pentecostal handbook, discerning of spirits. How does he know this is not a good thing? He knows it by the spirit inside of him that she is not right with God. So he hears the words but goes beyond that and discerns the spirit. Discerning of, spirit is, is of spirits is not equal with discernment, wisdom. A lot of people think discernment, wisdom is the gift there. No, there's a gift of wisdom that is still supernatural for you to know things and uh, rather to give information that only God would have. The spirit of knowledge, uh, the gift of knowledge is to know things that no one else would know. But uh, many people think like, um, well, I'm, I'm a discerning person. That means I have the gift of discerning of spirits. No, discerning of spirits is not being nosy and it's just not knowing the right thing to do at the right time. God can give you the wisdom to do that. The actual gift is to discern what is of God and what is of man, you know, and what is of the devil. Those three main attributes of the Spirit are either going to be from God, man, or the devil. And then there's subcategories underneath that. To know the spirit of a man is this man perverted. And some ladies feel that just naturally. Oh, this guy's kind of, 
you know, he gives me weird hugs. I don't like being around him, you know. He's always prophesying that he, we're supposed to get married, you know. That's a weird spirit. He's got a perverse spirit. And, and then there's an angry spirit. So there's all these kinds of spirit of men. And then men, the spirit of men can be influenced by the spirit of the devil. So the devil sees you, by your choice, have a perverse spirit. He can send a spirit to increase the perversion, and that becomes a perverse spirit. Now, I don't believe that there's actually spirits that walk around with a label going, I'm a perverse spirit. And then I'm going, I'm a deaf and dumb spirit and this and that. Uh, no, I, I believe that they are spirits who manifest in different ways, just like you are a spirit that can manifest in different ways. You can go from being polite to being angry, and so your spirit changes in that way. And so the spirit that can possess a man or oppress, and I believe there is a difference between being possessed and oppressed. I don't think Christians so much are possessed. I believe they're oppressed, which they're, that means you're influenced by the spirit. But that just goes into a place where we don't have a lot of scripture, but I just uh, give out of experience. But the bottom line here is this girl is possessed. She's saying the right things, but her heart ain't right. Paul gets annoyed, which by the way, getting angry, being annoyed, being frustrated is not a sin. It's whether or not you sin in those emotions, okay? And it could be a sin if you're lacking patience, but here it's okay to be annoyed. Jesus went to the temple annoyed as well, and, and there's times to be that way. So don't think that... Um, Every emotion in your in your spirit always has to be like uh, you know like just a happy emotion. You you should always have peace and joy in your heart. But through the the life that you live, you may feel anger, you may feel grieving, you may feel annoyance, and that may be a good thing. And that was a good thing for Paul, and he casts it out. But now this causes a problem, right? So the spirit leaves. Let's see what happens when her owners realize that their hope of making money was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So you see the issue here? It's now going to be a Jew versus Roman issue. They don't even care if they're Christians. It's just you guys are Jews, you're causing problems. And that's going to be part of the reason why the Jewish temple is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., just a few decades after this, is that the Jews already had their own problems with the Romans, and now Christians who happen to be Jews get thrown into that mess. But this is provoked by the name of Jesus and the deliverance. Once again, why the book was written, the book of Acts was more than likely to explain to the Romans who we actually were and what we were doing. And a lot of our apologetics at the beginning was for Roman, was to, written to Romans, to governors like Justin Martyr writing these letters to those in charge so that they can understand the Christian faith. The crowd joined in the attacks against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. We're going to see a deliverance here, but not now. You notice if you're going to write myth, why not say a light shone around them, they all fell back, and no, nah, they didn't even get touched. They couldn't even touch them if you were writing myth, right, Julian? I mean, you could make this look awesome. But no, they're actually stripped and beaten. Now, why does God allow it to go that way? Why does he deliver them in the jail cell? All we could say, that's God's sovereignty. God will allow suffering for his glory, and we ought not fight against it, but we ought to entrust our lives to Jesus, knowing that he will always take care of us. Amen? After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer commanded, was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet with stocks. That's like the most secure place to be in the middle of the jail, and you're fashioned, uh, your feet are fashioned to the stocks. You can't move. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Were they singing with the band on a stage with lights? What were they singing? Hymns to God. What was the hymnal of the early church? 
Psalms, the book of Psalms. What was the hymns that Jesus sang at the Last Supper? Psalms. It's this, that's the song, but literally Psalms means songs. That's what it means in, in Hebrew. That was their songbook. And the other prisoners were listening to them. So before we get all allegorical here and make up a story, are their chains symbolic of sin in their life? Are they going to sing to get free from sin? Are the chains in their life symbolic of a neighbor who doesn't like them and makes fun of them? No, their chains are not symbolic chains. They are actual chains of persecution. How should we first and foremost preach this story? Should we preach this story as a message of sanctification and getting out your chains and set me free? I'm going to sing right now. Or should we preach it as it was meant to be preached from Luke the author as a story of hope in persecution? Now, can we make other applications? Sure. But I'm so tired of the applications. I just want the Word of God. Please, just give me the Word of God. I'm so tired of your stories. I'm so tired of your acting. Could you please, sir, please, pastor, please, ma'am, speaker, would you just, would you read the Word? Would you read it again? Would you just tell me what it says, please? I'm so hungry for it. I feel so lost in the church world now because all I hear is stories, and stories don't make demons flee, and, so, and stories don't make disciples and stories don't set people free from sin. Are you listening? It's the power of God. It's the Word of God. And there's enough here. There's enough here. We, we haven't exhausted this where it's my turn now to tell my story. Luke, you're done. You're done, Luke. It's my turn now. I'm going to tell a story about how I was shackled up in depression, and I was in my midnight hour, and I cried out, and God set me free. Gosh darn it. And I want you all to hear my story. Oh, it's not time to tell my story now. It's time for us to magnify the God that was with Paul and Silas in a jail cell with their backs ripped open and their legs in stocks and they're singing to God not to get free from sin. These are holy men. They're not singing to get over depression. Maybe they're fighting against sadness. That may be true. But they're not sad on the inside needing a breakthrough. What they're doing is saying, whether we live or die, we're going to sing to Jesus. We're going to sing to Jesus. And they did, many of them, in their final hours when they were set on fire, eaten alive by the wild animals. They would die singing. Some of those who were brought... Before that, 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 that ocean water there, those Egyptians were saying the Lord's Prayer as they were getting beheaded. If you remember that, they were all lined up there by the water. When ISIS did that to them, they were singing the songs of the Lord. They were saying the Lord's Prayer. Amen. It terrified me when I would watch some of those beheading videos and I would hear them screaming, never be like that. If it's time for you to die, let this be your example. Just say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You're blindfolded. You're on your knees, and you hear the person next to you gargling in their blood, and you know you're next. Be thou my vision. Sing to the Lord. You see how powerful that is? I, I stop now to give you the example. You see how powerful that is? No need of a story here. We'll talk sanctification later where it's applicable. But have we talked this much about martyrdom that we now can skip the story of martyrdom or the story of persecution and just jump to being set free from porn now and hit the organ louder 
Do we, do, we, do we really understand this? No, we don't. So we got our brothers here. They're suffering. They're in chains. They're singing to the Lord, and people are listening to them because people listen to you as you go through your trials, right? Real trials will test the character of your heart, and people around you will notice how you receive that and how you go through it. Show them you trust God. Even in the times of our martyrdom, our own accusers and sometimes our executioners would lay down their head on the chopping block with us, go into the fire with us, because they did many executions in their life, many trials, and they had never seen anyone die as dignified as the Christians, not begging for their lives, not trying to lie and say, well, yeah, I don't believe in Jesus, and then run away and go, man, I do believe in Jesus, but I'm glad I'm out of there like they would see them die with courage and they would die with them. And so these people are listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Doesn't say it was a miracle there. I do believe we're supposed to assume that it's a miracle there. Possibly could have been a natural earthquake. All of that happened, but very, very, very unlikely. If you follow Luke's motif, it sounds like he's just inserting a miracle without having to say God sent the miracle. You can choose how to see that, but either way God used it, and now they're free. The jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword and was about ready to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. So even though now Paul is free, Paul is not jetting out the door, you know, doing that 100-yard dash. I'm out. Peace, deuce. He's like, hey, we're still here. We don't want you to kill yourself. We want the best thing for you too. And, and what would have to happen is if this happened on his watches, they would either ask him to kill himself or they would kill him. So it's like, do the honorable thing, take your own life, or we kill you. That was the tradition here. That's another evidence for the resurrection of Jesus because of the Roman guards that were standing before the throne, uh, not, not the throne, but the, uh, the door. They would not have made up a story, and the disciples would not have stole their body. So this is a true part of history. The Roman soldiers had a lot on their shoulders, a soldier, soldier, Soldiers, Roman soldiers had a lot on their shoulders. Thank you, Jesus. It's Monday, and I'm having a hard time here with words. Pray for me. This is where I told you guys the Lord always humbles me on Monday after Sunday. Shoulders and soldiers. Shoulders and soldiers. I don't know why that sounds so weird right now. So they had a lot of responsibility, and he's about ready to kill himself. And Paul says, no, don't do that. We're all here. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. So this is where I believe it's a miracle because he would have known something was up here. You know, it wasn't something normal for them to go through a, such an earthquake or to see the way the things broke off. I mean, literally, it just might have been popping off stuff and shaking a little bit, popping off the chains there. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now here we go. Here's Paul's chance now to, for this to be the Roman Catholic handbook to say, go confess your sins to the priest. Here's the chance now for the, the Calvinism handbook to say, don't do nothing. God's already saved you, dude. It was already done. You know, God did it for you. Here's the chance for the, uh, the Judaizer, the black Hebrew Israelite movement. Here's their chance. Go get circumcised. Follow the law of Moses. Here's the chance, right? Or what does Paul say? He says to them, Believe in the Lord Jesus. Well, as a matter of fact, it says they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. So it's by faith we are saved. Amen. Amen. We're saved by faith. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. That's why we should do baptisms more often, if not immediately. I really believe that. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. 
I'll get to the whole household thing in just a moment. Let me uh, just finish this passage here. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. Now, what's weird about this is why, if you're making up myth, because I always like to go to the total non-believers, secularists, people who don't believe in God, and they say it's all myth. If you're making up myth, why say they were going to get released anyways? Why not say before they were about ready to get beaten, an angel shone around them, and it took 20 men to tie them down, and then in the night it set them free, and that was the same very next day they were going to kill them, but they were free, you know? No, the story doesn't go anything like that. They get beat, they get stripped naked, they're thrown into jail, they get set free, and then they're told, we were going to let you free anyway. doesn't really sound like a really epic story. Like at the end, like the bad guy, the alien goes, hey, I wasn't going to do anything anyways. I was just coming to check out planet Earth. I just wanted to hang out here for a little bit. Like after Will Smith blows up a bunch of stuff, we were just going to chill. We were just going to hang out, you know. It's like, no, it's just like, it like takes away the story. There's no, there's no power in that. Once again, it's just God sovereignly moving in and out. And you can almost see the disciples like, God, like, if I was going to get released anyway and I was going to choose a miracle, I would rather the miracle be I don't get beat and stay the night in jail than for me to get beat and get released from jail when I was going to get re- you know, in the middle of the night when I was going to get released in the morning. Do you all get that? Like if you're picking your miracle, what miracle do you want to get released from jail when you're going to get released the next day anyways or to get free from getting beat and stripped naked, right? I would rather choose to not get beat. But God does a miracle of releasing them even though they're going to get released. Just shows God wanted to save the jailer's family, I think. That's what I think it was about. And to show his power, and he's moving on their behalf to encourage them. I think it's all of that. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. They're sassy Paul. See, sometimes people don't think the Bible gives the permission to be agitated or annoyed or to be sassy. It's all there. Paul doesn't go, yes, we're just so humble. We're just going to leave now. No, this is meekness but not weakness. He says, man, I'm a Roman citizen, and if you all still believe the law of Rome, I want them to come and apologize. They didn't have a right to do it, and Silas was a Roman citizen, full name Silvanius, and you didn't have a right to beat him either. Verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Well, I guess we shouldn't have beat those guys. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. So, hey, we still want you guys to go. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the other brothers and sisters, encouraged them. Then they left. Amen. Let me just share with you a quick promise that's in here. He says, if you believe, then you and your household will be saved. Uh, This probably has caused more anguish to people than it has really, uh, I don't want to say more than it's given hope, maybe 50-50. It's given a lot of hope, but it's given a lot of anguish. Here's the the dilemma here. If God says he's going to save me and my whole household, why did so-and-so die without being saved? Okay, that that hurts, doesn't it? My sister died drinking and driving. Was she saved? I highly doubt it, but I don't know. We'll see. She could have repented. She flew out through the car going 70 miles an hour, right? Most preachers, all they want to do is just have you preach, you know, believe this, but then never deal with that day when you're at the funeral. I got to be honest with you here, right? That's a specific promise to a specific man. That's a prophecy. You and your household are going to get saved. Not every specific promise is for everybody in the, in the world. Are you guys tracking with me? So here's what I say. If God did it for him, you can ask God to do it for you. But they still have their choice. 
They had their choice in the household, but Paul was given a prophetic word that all of them would choose. Do you get that? Because if God can force people to be saved, then why, would, were, uh, why did Adam and Eve ever fall? And why did Judas leave? And why did Saul backslide, etc.? So even God doesn't have the, the, um, the, the, the trump card to be like, everybody gets saved, boom, I'm throwing it down. He doesn't do, because he doesn't even operate like that. Do you all get that? But what he does is make salvation available for everybody. So we're not Calvinists. We believe salvation is available for everybody, but everybody has to make their choice. Here the specific promise is, hey, God's saying everybody's getting saved today. Everybody. Everybody. Yeah, I'm getting saved, baby. Come on. But that doesn't mean everybody for you is getting saved based on that promise because then if it doesn't happen, you're going to say God's a liar and you're going to get discouraged. Well, my second cousin died, and she's a part of my family. She comes to the family reunions, and she was a lesbian who smoked drugs and whatever. You know, it's like, well, what happened? You know, she was an atheist. Hey, you either got to try and say, now everybody's in heaven who really shouldn't be. Now you're at their funeral going, well, even though she was a crack-smoking, meth-shooting, lesbian, uh, gang member, uh, atheist, she's in heaven now in a better place because she was a part of my household, and I prayed for her. Or you, you go, we don't know. Chances are she's in hell. Don't you go there. Learn from her life, and let me tell you how to get to heaven, the rest of my family. Amen? Do you all see that? That's good to understand because you will face times where family members don't die knowing Jesus. But we should take the promise that if he did it for them, he can do it for us by giving them the opportunity to be saved. And let that be a, a lesson to all of us when we give prophetic words. Let it be true. Amen? Let it be true. Here's the closing that I think we can get out of today. A lot of different stories in here. But we need to be faithful to preach the gospel and make disciples in every season of our life. When people leave us, like John Mark and our friend Barnabas, be faithful to preach the gospel because God's going to send us uh, Timothy and a Silas. When you feel like a door is shut, you can't go there, wait for God to open up the next door because there's a place for you to be. When you're preaching the gospel and things are going awesome and you're getting people, even rich people or influential people saved, that's great, but still do the nitty-gritty. Cast out demons, heal the sick, do the thing, even if it costs you something. And if you get wrongly treated and you suffer and you're thrown into jail, be faithful to God and he'll make you fruitful, amen? He may deliver you or he may not, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, but you still serve God anyway, amen? And then you let him continue your journey on. That's what I think we learned from this chapter. Let's close out in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We pray that we'll let the word of God speak for itself and we'll learn from it and be encouraged by it and live it out. Help us now to go and do likewise. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's give.